in doing the last talk of a session, I try to think about what are the most important things for me to say and try to summarize all of the phases we've moved through. First, we become what we practice. We become what we practice. If we practice a negative state of mind, whether we name the voices and we call them the inner critic and the outer judge and the inner complainer, Cinderella mind, everybody else gets to have fun and I have to stay home and sit in the ashes in the fireplace. <laughs> the inner patriarch, this is how a good woman should behave. The inner patriarch is a voice not inside men, but inside women. This is how good women should behave. The inner matriarch, this is how a good man should behave. The inner whiner, the inner resistor. Or whether we lump all those voices together and just call them the I, me, mine preoccupation. If we practice a negative state of mind, we will become negative, And we will suffer. And we will infect others around us with that suffering. If we practice positive states of mind, we will become positive in heart and mind, and we will infect others around us with ease and happiness. There's an odd belief in our current society that if I feel unhappy, well, that's real. And so I should just feel unhappy and too bad for other people around me. And to try to change my state of mind is fake. Therefore, I will not do it. And S, they used to call that uh, getting in a position, on a position, holding a position. And they used to yell pe at people when they were on a position, like, I'm unhappy and I'm going to stay unhappy because that's the truth. They would say, get off it. <laughs> get off it. Like you're on a soapbox called, I am unhappy. And the Buddha, 2,560 years ago, said, said, get off it. He said, it's possible to get off it, so get off it. Why cling to your suffering? Suffering is caused by clinging, and then we suffer, and then we cling to our suffering, because it's real. But it isn't real, and we know that. We know that if we were unhappy, and then somebody called us up and said, you just won the lottery. Somebody entered your name without you even knowing it, and we're sending you a million dollars. Would we go, oh, I'm unhappy and I'm not going to be happy about that. <laughs> we have the ability to change our states of mind. Why not do that? So the first point is we become what we practice. And we have to keep checking, what am I practicing? What am I practicing right now? And then can I use a tool to change that? That's what the first bodhisattva vow means, as, as Hoban said yesterday. It's usually, the, the old translation is, um, beings are numberless, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. And then you think, save from what? We don't go out on street corners telling people, be saved with Buddhism. Buddhism will save you. Come to a seven-day silent retreat. You'll love it, and you'll just feel like saved. <laughs> we, don't, we don't go out and save people, right? So what are we saving them from? 
Well, what we're really saying, the only thing we can save them from is ourselves, is the net of delusion, of unhappiness, of negativity, of reactivity, of comparison, of separation that we create. That we create. So if we practice that separation through whatever means, we create more separation and more unhappiness. We become what we practice. Number two, the mind does not tell us the truth. The mind thinks that its job is to think and that the more it thinks, the better things will get. If it thinks a little bit more, then things will get better. And if it thinks even more, then there will be a complete solution will just arise out of nowhere and all of our suffering will end. The mind thinks that more thinking will make us happier. And that is not the truth. I mean, there are certain problems, of course, where more thinking will make us ease, ease some of our difficulties in life. But when you, really, when you really ask your mind the question constantly, do I really need to think about this now, again? You'd be surprised how little thinking is necessary. Here's Hafiz. What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. What do sad people have in common? It seems they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. Or in modern, modern terms, we often say, no matter how hard the inner critic tries, it will not be able to change the past. The past is the past. The past is the foundation for this wonderful day of our life. We don't want to change it. You know those movies where you go back and change something in the past and then everything falls apart and people disappear from photographs and, you know, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Tell the inner critic, stop. I don't want to change the past. I'm here, I'm practicing. I'm sitting in the woods. I have good companions. This is fantastic. So the mind thinks that more thinking will make us happier, will make us loved, will make us safe. But actually, the opposite is true. I mean, a simple example is if you're driving down the highway and you're thinking versus you're open, aware, and alert, which is safer? The more we are able to maintain a spacious mind of alert awareness, the more interesting life becomes, and the happier we become. In fact, we can be happy even when we're not happy. Though it's a very peculiar thing. As you go on in practice, you can have something happen that makes you very sad, like someone you love die. And you are sad, but you are also happy. In that, fun, I don't mean laughing happy, but I mean in that fundamental way of, oh, I am living life. I am a human being. I am a human being who loves another human being. 
And I can feel that love, that love is palpable as grief. It's a, it's a bittersweet, wonderful feeling when our mind is changed. Being unhappy can become interesting. Something to look at, something to investigate it. So although the mind says more thinking will make you happier, in fact, more awareness will make us happier and more at ease. Dogen Zenji says, continuous practice is not necessarily something people in the world love. But it should be the true place of return for everyone. Because of the continuous practice of all Buddhas of past, present, and future, all Buddhas of past, present, and future are actualized. Where are Buddhas actualized? Where are they actualized? They're actualized right here. This is the place where Buddhas are actualized. How are they actualized? Through our continuous practice. Through our continuous practice. Dogen Zenji says, the effect of such sustained practice is sometimes not hidden. Therefore, you aspire to practice. Not hidden means we can tell that the practice is making a difference, and that inspires us to practice more. The effect of sustained practice is sometimes not hidden. Therefore, you aspire to practice. So everyone is feeling a lightening of the burden of self. What a relief. What a relief when we can feel that, as one of my co-students at ZCLA used to say, he was a biology professor, he used to say, every time I go to Sashin, I felt like I just took my mind and put it through the laundromat. That's that, what a relief feeling. The effect of sustained practice not being hidden. Wooden man starts to sing. Stone woman gets up and dance. We become alive instead of frozen, frozen in self-consciousness, frozen because all the voices in our minds are competing, frozen because we're still trying to figure out how to live, and meanwhile we're not living, not enjoying living. But then Dogen Zenji goes on and he says, the effect of sustained practice is sometimes not apparent. Therefore, you may see, hear, or know it. We want to know if we're making progress. But a lot of what we would call progress, transformation, is slow foundational change. And it's hidden from the conscious mind. It's below the level of a conscious mind. It's like removing a brick from a faulty foundation that we've built. We built it with the tools we had at the time, when we were three years old, five years old, seven years old, 13 years old. We built this foundation for ourselves as best we could out of the material that we had and the tools that we had, which were not many. So we find a faulty brick. Oh, when I act like this, it's based on this. That's not a very good thing to base my life on, reacting to my father and someone else, you know, projecting my father or my brother, 
my dreaded school teacher on somebody else. That's a faulty brick. And we remove it and, and we replace it with a very solid brick, a solid brick of emptiness, of don't know mind. But that, that process of making foundational change, of detecting the faulty bricks, having the old conditioning come, come up, letting it go when it comes up, all this stuff bubbles up during session, letting it go, not reacting to it, letting it go and replacing it with non-action, non-thinking, is frustratingly slow, but it is very thorough. It is very thorough. Dogen Zenji says, you should understand, though, although it is not revealed, it is not hidden. So even though the effects of our practice are not revealed to us, or even obvious to other people, it's not hidden. It's not hidden from the trees. It's not hidden from the trees. A very beautiful practice is to become aware that everything is aware of you. It's as if everything has eyes. Everything is aware of you. And rather than that tipping you over into devastating (laughs) self-consciousness, it's actually very freeing. Try it. Our practice is not hidden from the trees. Every time we do this session, I feel like I should apologize to the trees. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just, I ignored you this whole year. Last August, I was in such good communication with you, and then I just drifted away. It's not hidden from the grasses. It's not hidden from the baby swallows who are learning to fly. It's not hidden from the chain of karma. And it is not hidden from our true life. It is revealed in our life, breath by breath, action by action, whether we're aware of it or not. So although the mind thinks that more thinking will make us happier, in fact, more awareness will make us more at ease and will have a transformative effect. Not doing. As Dogen said, he said, not thinking will transform us. That is like very hard for the mind to grasp. Not doing, not thinking will transform us. Next point from this session. It takes time to learn to access and trust open awareness. The mind has to be convinced over time that we will be happier if it's not thinking all the time. It gets suspicious of all the quiet. Like my grandchildren were just here, and you know they're playing happily and running around and bumping into people. And the the, the house up at Stewart Creek, you, and also the one downtown where we were, Chilliam House, you can run around in a circle, which they did endlessly. And then suddenly they're quiet, and everybody goes. All the parents and grandparents go, "Whoa, what is what's happening? <laughs> where are they? What are they doing?" In the old days, it would have been maybe they, we found a candy bar and we're eating it, or we're playing doctor. Um, but these days, they found someone's iPad, <laughs> which they're forbidden to play games on, and they're playing games on the iPad. 
it takes time to trust a new way of being. It takes practicing it and learning to trust it over time. Does it hold up? Is it reliable? Does it, does it really bring us more happiness, more ease, more wisdom, more clarity, and more kindness? We have to learn to trust that open awareness, to trust that it will make us happier than constant thinking. We have to learn that it makes us more efficient. I always tell people, if you do a half an hour of zazen a day, you'll get about an hour back in increased efficiency. But you have to learn that. That it'll make us safer. And it'll make us more connected to other people and to the rest of the world. It takes time to learn to access and trust open awareness as a fundamental way of being. Next, in this awakened awareness, all problems disappear. All things are as they are. In this wide open awareness, we as a problem disappear. That's our primary problem, me. Other people are a problem too because they don't agree with us, but the central problem is me. In this wide open awareness, we as a problem disappear. In this eternal present, in this eternal present that Dogen Zenji talks about, the mountains and rivers are always in the eternal present. In this eternal embracing presence, presence, which we can feel in mountains, hmm? something that big we can feel presence, get a little hint of that great presence. In that eternal, embracing presence, we are always at home. These are not ideas that are imported from Asia. They're not foreign to us in the West. Oh, I like the Buddhist way of thinking. I'll just replace my way of thinking with the Asian way of thinking. It's not like that. These are true aspects of our original nature. It doesn't matter where we're born, what nationality we are, how old we are what gender we, all that is irrelevant. It's all irrelevant in the Great One. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. It's a poem by Rilke. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. A stone woman gives birth to a child at night. So in in a line like that from Dogen Zenji, or from some of our chants, each word is a whole koan. What is a stone woman? And what is giving birth? And what is a child? Who is that child? And what is night at night? Dogen Zenji says it's called night. The moment of giving birth is called night. Maybe the birth part is obvious now that you've done 
week of session, you feel like you've been through labor, right? <laughs> so that part might be obvious. A stone woman gives birth to a child at night. What does that mean? This awareness, this presence, isn't a characteristic just of human beings either. It's not the exclusive property either of some special human beings like Jesus. Although it seems that he dwelt in it most of the time, in that presence most of the time, which he called my father. So there are some human beings who seem to have had access to it, have access to it, and can express that in ways that inspire others. But it doesn't matter if those people aren't around anymore, because it is always present. It is always available. It is hidden from us only by our confusion, by our delusion, by our self-centered thoughts. It is closer than our breath. It is infused in each of the vibrant cells of our body. When we're born, it doesn't increase. When we die, when we die it doesn't decrease. It's present in our blood. It's present in the strawberry shortcake that we eat. And it's present in the feces that the strawberry shortcake becomes. A monk asked Uman, what is Buddha? Uman answered, a dried shit stick. <laughs> oh, no, no, not that. And what that refers to is in the days before toilet paper, you had to wipe your bottom with something. And in some countries, they used a stick to, to scrape their bottom. And they actually had, an, in Dogen Zenji's writings, you can read about it, they had a box of clean sticks in the latrine and then a bucket of water, and then another bucket of water. A bucket of water for washing your, washing your bottom, and another bucket of water for washing your hands after that. A monk asked Uman, what is Buddha? Uman answered, a dried shit stick. Well, that was a surprising answer even at that time. <laughs> It'd be like, somebody comes into Sanzen and they say to Chosen, what is this Buddha nature? And I say, it's a piece of used toilet paper. Uman's comments, we must say, we must say that being so poor, we must say that being so poor, Uman cannot appreciate plain food, or he is so busy that he cannot even scribble properly. He is disposed to support his school with dry dung. Look at how devastated the Buddhist teaching has been. And the poem, Lightning Flashes, Sparks of striking flint. In a blink of your eyes, you have passed by and missed it. So in this awakened awareness, all problems disappear. All things are as they are, including us. We are the perfect fit for the whole in the universe that is shaped like us. And of course, we can still act, things being perfect as they are. We can still act. 
We can take up our place in the world to do our work with, with its many problems, but we're not acting on problems. We're following the natural flow of our life with the skills and talents and position in life and geographic position and so on that we have. Next point from this session. There are places where it is easier to access the boundless mind, and nature is one of them. Being immersed in nature, becoming again a child of nature. When Dogen Zenji talks about mountains and rivers in our Noon Sutra, he's talking about mountains and rivers, but he is simultaneously talking about qualities of awakened awareness of our true nature. So he's talking about mountains and rivers. He's talking about how mountains and rivers can guide us to that experience, but he's also talking about the experience itself, about the life itself. The mountain quality of stability, immovability, and perturbability. It's so interesting to put yourself inside a mountain. One of our koans is, become a mountain, be a mountain. Bring me a mountain. Put yourself inside that mountain. And then you move your mountain awareness around inside the mountain. What do you perceive? A very thin layer of hair, grasses and trees, in which tiny beings walk or run around for a millisecond of time compared to the lifespan of the mountain. Less than a millisecond of time compared to the lifespan of the mountain. So our life is like little fruit flies, like we're born, die. (laughs) You know, as this panorama of time goes by, right? And yet, in our practice, one moment, as you know, one sitting period can expand and be timeless. Timeless. When we dwell in the eternal present of the mountain. From inside the mountain, is the mountain imperturbable in the face of its own death? If the mountain gets blasted apart to make gravel for a road, what's the mountain's feeling about that? Or if it's blasted apart, if a tunnel is drilled through it, or if it's blasted apart to make a new highway. So from inside, when we let go of our self-centered view, when we enter other realities, then we can ask some very interesting questions which give us perspective. We can ask the mountain, how does it feel about that? Maybe the mountain chuckles, oh, oh, oh. We had a resident here who would, he had different voices, and the voice that would come out during session was, he called it, so he had the coach. The coach would like get him through a session, and the coach would go, you can do it. Come on, one more time. Just back to that cushion. Just give it your all. And then, but then at the end of session, he would be in, in what he called the big, fat Hawaiian guy mind. Whatever happens, like, ho, ho, ho. So you ask the mountain. You ask the mountain. The water quality of flowing, taping, taking the shape of any vessel, 
any vessel that's offered, it takes that shape. Able to clean up any accumulated dirt, warm and gentle, cold and powerful, over time able to cause huge changes. To wear a hole in a boulder one drop at a time, one drop at a time. Can we detect when our minds are becoming rigid, when our minds are not flowing? Our Zen training helps us to do that. Oop, my mind just became rigid. I just put on the brakes. And then you take the backward step. I think I'll write a little article about all the computer analogies. The computer is so great for Zen analogies. So it's like that undo button, you know, that backwards arrow. You can do the backward step. Take the backward step and let the mind flow freely into the situation afresh. Our mind is like a stream, flowing, flowing, flowing. And then we can detect when it suddenly gets caught in a little eddy, you know, when it gets kind of caught over on the side and it starts swirling around with leaves and trash. All the trash gets caught over there. You know how that happens? All the garbage, all the plastic bags and stuff. And then we have the ability to free that little side channel and get our mind back into the flow of the main channel. So we can detect when that's happening through the tools of practice, through wide open awareness. Nature teaches us that flow. Nature teaches us that flow. Dogen Zenji says, flowers fall despite our attachment to them. Flowers fall, despite our attachment, flow. And weeds grow up, despite our aversion, flow. You might think it's silly when I say, well, why don't you try merging your awareness with a tree? Or why don't you find, why don't you ask the tree the question, a question that you have? But if we simply stay receptive, it's a way of staying receptive. It's a way of stepping out of our human mind and becoming completely receptive. We might be surprised by what's happened, what will happen. People have come to me quite surprised, like, whoa, the tree did this or the tree said that. You know, it's us, of course. But it's, it's actually prajnaparamita is able to flow when we get out of the way. Whether it flows through a tree or a dharma teacher or something we read, it doesn't matter. Shakespeare said, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. When we immerse ourselves in the immensity of now, in the immensity of nature, when we open our senses to a world that is always now, 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 now. We begin to awaken from the brainwashing of constant thought. And we experience our life as part of all life and the separation that causes our fundamental distress begins to fade. In my very first session at ZCLA, I was 
walking around in the garden uh, during a break, and I was looking at a flower with that kind of awareness that we have with nature, where we just become completely receptive. It was on a, it was like a hibiscus flower, I think, a pink one with stamens that stuck out, and just suddenly I, I, I dropped into my life and this flower's life are exactly the same. And my next doksan, samzen with Izumi Roshi, I rush in to tell him that. And, and, and he did the, the verbal equivalent of there, there. <laughs> so I'm glad you had that nice little experience. <laughs> but I knew it was a doorway. I knew it was a doorway in to the truth. And so I began to go to session regularly. The inconceivable power of soaring. The inconceivable power of soaring. Hoban mentioned Flora Courtois, who was a person who practiced at ZCLA. She died a few years ago. But she wrote a little book about her spontaneous enlightenment experience. Spontaneous, not in the sense of she was just walking around on the street and it happened to her, but spontaneous in that she wasn't studying a discipline. But she had this deep question of, this can't be all there is to life. This cannot be all there is to reality. I want to see deeper. And so when you have that, that desire to see deeper, you, you, you develop this power of trying to look underneath everything that's happening. And that's the way she was, trying to look underneath the surface and see what is really there. So it's a kind of samadhi. And she describes several experiences uh, that led up to this experience. This is her third experience. In April, Easter vacation arrived, and I went home to Detroit to spend a week with my parents. There, about three days later, alone in my room, sitting quietly on the edge of my bed and gazing at a small desk, not thinking of anything at all, in a moment too short to measure, the universe changed on its axis, and my search was over. So this is exactly how it happens. You've been concentrating and practicing, and she'd been practicing so earnestly. And then when we pull back, that's why it's important to, to rest and practice periodically, not just get in the way. Then when we pull back, then the door can open, the pivot can turn. In a moment too short to measure, the universe changed on its axis, and my search was over. The small pale green desk at which I'd been so th thoughtlessly gazing had totally and radically changed. It appeared now with a clarity, a depth of three-dimensionality, a freshness I had never imagined possible. At the same time, in a way that is utterly indescribable, all my questions and doubts were gone as effortlessly as the shaft and wind. I knew everything and all at once, not yet in the sense that I had ever known anything before. All things were the same in my little bedroom, yet totally changed still sitting in wonder on the edge of my narrow bed, one of the first things I realized what was, the was that the focus of my sight seemed to have changed. It had sharpened to an infinitely small point which moved ceaselessly in paths totally free of the old accustomed ones, as if flowing from a new source. What on earth had happened? 
so released from all tension, so ecstatically light did I feel, I seemed to float down the hall to the bathroom to look at my face in the mottled mirror over the sink. The pupils of my eyes were dark, dilated, and brim brimming with mirth. With a wondrous relief, I began to laugh, as I'd never laughed before, from the soles of my feet upward. So she thought something was wrong with her eyes, so she went to look in the mirror, and she realized, oh, the person looking back at her was actually very happy. So it's a different way of seeing. It's a way of boring beneath the surface and seeing with this concentrated awareness. Within a few days, I had returned to Ann Arbor, and there, over a period of many months, there took place a ripening. So this is very, very important because we can have these experiences. Almost everyone has had the experience in session of things becoming more vivid and three-dimensional, which they always are. It's not like, oh, session made them three-dimensional. They were always that way. They were always bright and vivid. It's just that the clouds that cloud not only our mind but our vision are, are, are dispersed by our zazen. But you know you have a, you have an insight, you have an opening, and then you go on life and with life, and then you go back to your to your regular life of being irritated by people and so on. Then what's the point? So we have to take that little foot in the door and keep practicing, keep opening it up. Over a period of many months, there took place a ripening, a deepening, and an unfolding of this experience, which filled me with wonder and gratitude at every moment. The foundations had fallen from my world. I had plunged into a numinous openness, which had obliterated all fixed distinctions, including that of within and without. A presence, with a capital P, had absorbed the universe, including myself, and to this I surrendered in absolute confidence. Often, without any particular direction in mind, I found myself outside, running along the street in joyous abandon. Sometimes when alone, I simply danced as freely as I did as a child. The whole world seemed to have reversed itself, to have turned outside in. Activity flowed simply and effortlessly, and to my amazement, seemingly without thought. Effort flowed effortlessly, without thought. Instead of following my old sequence of learning, thinking, planning, then acting, action had taken precedence and whatever was learned was surprisingly incidental. Yet nothing ever seemed to go out of bounds. There was no alteration between self-control and letting go, but rather a perfect rightness and spontaneity to all this flowing activity. This is when the practice takes over. This new kind of knowing was so pure and unadorned, so delicate, that nothing in language of my past could express it. Neither sense nor feeling nor imagination contained it, yet all were contained in it. In some indefinable way, I knew with absolute certainty the changeless unity and harmony in changes of the universe and the inseparability of all seeming opposites. It was as if, before all this occurred, I, I, had been a fixed point inside my head looking out at a world out there, a separate and comparatively flat world, the periphery of awareness had now come to light, yet neither fixed periphery nor center existed as such. A paradoxical quality seemed to permeate all existence. Feeling myself centered as never before, at the same time I knew the whole universe to be centered at every point. Having plunged to the center of emptiness, 
having lost all purposefulness in the old sense, I had never felt so one-pointed, so clear and decisive. Freed from separateness, feeling at one with the universe, everything, including myself, had become at once unique and equal. If God was the word for this presence in which I was absorbed, then everything was either holy or nothing. No distinction was possible. All was meaningful, complete as it was, each bird, bud, midge, mole, atom, crystal, of total importance in itself. As in the notes of a great symphony, nothing was large or small, nothing of more or less importance to the whole. I now saw that wholeness. I now saw that wholeness and holiness are one. All was meaningful, complete as it was, each bird, bud, midge, mole, atom, crystal, each of us, every being in the world, including you, of total importance in yourself. We become what we practice. The mind thinks that more thinking will make us happier, but in fact, more quiet, open awareness will make us happier and at ease. It takes time to learn to access and trust open awareness. In this awakened awareness, all problems disappear. All things are as they are. Nature is a reliable place to forget the self and to rest in awareness, to become completely receptive and to allow the 10,000 things to advance and bring us home. This is a poem from a book by David White. It's from a Native American story where a young Native American boy is afraid of the forest. I notice that some people seem still to be afraid of the forest. Please, tonight, please go into the forest. If we have time, we have, we're going to be doing a ceremony, but if we have time, go into the forest. I don't care if you sit deep in the forest for five minutes, but please venture there and sit there and sit long enough to relax and open, open, open. The meadow is nice, but the forest is different. So this young Native American man was afraid of going in the forest, afraid of getting lost. And this is what his grandfather said to him. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a bush or a tree does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. 
The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Please let the forest find you.